The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. This morning we will finish out chapter 10, giving attention to verses 38 through 42. It's a relatively short passage that Luke includes here at the end of chapter 10. Right on the heels of the parable of the Good Samaritan, he writes, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up and up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha. You're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. We live in a very busy world, don't we? A very busy world, a very busy culture. We're busy people who live busy lives, busily doing lots of things. If you were to sit down and make a list of all the things you did this week, it would probably be an enormous list of many things. You've been busy, no doubt. I've been busy. We are busy people who live in a busy world filled with many distractions. And because we're busy people who live in a busy world filled with many distractions, we run into all sorts of challenges when it comes to setting our priorities and when it comes to allocating our time. It seems like the demands continue to increase. And yet the amount of time we have to accomplish the demands does not change. There's actually an interesting amount of research that's been done in recent years on the concept of busyness, of being busy, and how busyness has changed and shaped and shifted over the decades. I ran into a couple of articles that I thought were relatively interesting that I thought I would share a couple of excerpts from you because they were enlightening to me. Uh, Oliver Berkman, a researcher, wrote this in an article entitled, Why You Feel Busy All the Time When You're Actually Not. A couple of excerpts from this I thought were helpful. He said, he noticed that the total time people are working, whether paid or otherwise, has not increased in Europe or North America in recent decades. Does that shock you? The total amount of time that people spend working, either paid or unpaid, in recent decades in both Europe and North America hasn't really changed. People are not actually spending more time 
working. If that's the case, then why do we feel busy all the time? And why do we feel busier than we have ever felt? Well, he answers that question in a couple of ways. He says, Part of it is the result of the kind of work in which many of us are engaged. And he looks back to history and he says, in former eras dominated by farming or manufacturing, labor could certainly be physically punishing, but it obeyed certain limits. You can't harvest crops before they're ready. You can't make more physical products than the available material allows. So there are some basic restraints on how much work you could do. But the era in which we live he says it's called, uh, he refers to it as, as, as an era in which we are, are, are doing more knowledge work, and that's something that's changed. He says we live in an infinite world of information. There are always more incoming emails, more meetings, more things to read, more ideas to follow up, and digital mobile technology means you can easily crank through a few more to-do list items at home or on holiday or at the gym. The result, inevitably, is feeling overwhelmed. He says we, we feel a social pressure to do it all at work and at home, but that's not just really difficult. It's in fact a mathematical impossibility. He goes on to argue that when we're busy like that, uh, the, we're more likely to make poor time management choices. And we start taking on commitments that we can't handle, and we start prioritizing trifling tasks over crucial ones. And he says this, a vicious spiral kicks in. Your feelings of busyness leave you even busier than before. And so we're busy people who do busy, busily do things that make us feel busier than ever. In another article written by Tony Crabb, another researcher in this area, called Five Reasons Why Everyone is So Busy, he says this, we have too much to do, too much information, and too much pressure. Today, he says, you will consume the equivalent of 174 newspapers worth of content, which he notes is five times as much as you would have done in 1986. He says, we live in an age where computing power and internet connection speeds are increasing exponentially along with sheer, the sheer quantity of information and entertainment. We're constantly bombarded with the seething static of limitless information, communication, and choice. And this sentence caught my attention. He said, in this world of too much, we are simultaneously overstimulated and bored, enriched and empty, connected, yet isolated and alone. In his article, he, he lists some reasons why everyone is so busy, and I thought those, those were convicting a bit as well. The first thing he says is this, it's easier to be busy. Busy is easier. He says we're, we're busy because we don't make the tough choices. We allow the world and our inbox to set our agenda rather than to think for ourselves. It's easier to simply react, to choose to try to do everything rather than make the difficult decisions to unchoose things. It takes more courage to do less. So being busy is easier, he argues. He also says that we're busy because busyness is a form of avoidance. He says, all those things you keep meaning to do, those things that will make a real difference in your life and career, they're hard to do. 
And so in the heat of the moment, when we have to choose between easy work and hard work, between skimming through email or grappling with that complex project, we more often than not choose the easy, busy activity. And he says we throw ourselves into frenetic activity and we give ourselves the perfect excuse for not doing the big thinking stuff and being busy we get to feel productive while procrastinating. I thought that was a very insightful statement. And he goes on in the article to argue that busyness is really an addiction, that we get a, a charge out of being busy, and so we get addicted to the feeling of busyness. Much more to be said about that, but I want to shift gears to another article that I found in the headline caught my attention. 75% of Americans admit digital notifications hurt work focus. I thought, well, that's fascinating. One of the things that drives busyness and distracts us from things that are important are digital notifications. You know what I'm talking about when I say digital notifications. We all know that, right? Those little red circles that pop up near the apps on your phone that have a number in the middle that tell you how many emails are waiting for you, how many text messages need to be returned, how many important bits of information Hilton has for you to read right now. The number of times your portfolio has changed, gone up or down in recent days, and you need to review that. A new U.S. survey found that society's digital distraction epidemic is deeply impacting our ability to focus and to accomplish tasks at work and in our personal lives. The survey conducted found 75% of people admit that digital notifications lead to procrastination and decreased focus and that individuals waste nearly an entire eight-hour workday's worth of time checking notifications every week. Wow. Almost an entire workday's worth of time spent checking notifications every week. That's remarkable when we think about how important time is, isn't it? Time is something that we only have a limited quantity of. We don't get more of it. There's no way to get any more than what we have. And time is the commodity that once spent, you never get it back. If you want to read something really convicting and insightful about how to use time or the use of time, I commend to you a little treatise that Jonathan Edwards wrote uh, many, many years ago, in fact, 1734, entitled The Preciousness of Time and the Importance of Redeeming It. It's a really helpful read in the midst of a, of a culture like we live in where busyness with trivial things becomes dominant in our lives. I'll give you an excerpt from Edward's treatise. He says this about time. He says, how little is the preciousness of time considered and how little sense of it do the greater part of mankind seem to have? And to how little good purpose do many spend their time? There's nothing more precious and yet nothing of which men are more prodigal. Time is with many as silver was in the days of Solomon, as the stones of the street and nothing to be accounted of. They act as if time were as plenty as silver was then, and as if they had a great deal more than they needed and knew not what to do with it. If men were as lavish of their money as they are with their time, 
if it were as common a thing for them to throw away their money as it is for them to throw away their time, we should think them beside themselves and not in the possession of their right minds. Yet time is a thousand times more precious than money. And when it's gone, it cannot be purchased for money. It cannot be redeemed by silver or gold. There are several sorts of persons who are reproved by this doctrine. And he goes on to mention all the different kinds of people who need to hear that message. How quick we are to throw away our time on the trivial and busy ourselves with things that don't really matter and the things that matter most don't get done. And how distracted we are because of the busyness. Well, the Bible, as always, is relevant to our lives. We know this to be true. You don't even have to work hard, really, in some cases, to, to, to show that. And our text this morning is a case that makes relevance so obvious to us. We're not the only ones who've struggled with maintaining priorities. We're not the only ones who struggled with allowing busyness to get in the way of the real priorities of life. We're not the first ones to get sidelined with trivial things only to let the most important things slide away. As we enter our text, we're introduced to a family. For the first time in Luke, we're introduced to this family. And Luke is the only one who records this particular incident in the life of this family. Though John speaks of this family in his gospel on a couple of occasions, he gives us a little more insight into who they are and some other events that take place in their interaction with Jesus. But here in Luke chapter 10, we have a unique sort of peep into their private family home on a particular day. And we get to see their hearts exposed. And if we look intently into it, I suspect that you'll be as convicted by it as I have been. The home is the home of sisters by the name of Martha and Mary. We're told at the beginning of this, as Jesus went on his way, he entered a village, and there's a woman named Martha who welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary. Now, we don't know from Luke's gospel uh, what village this is. Uh, there's no time marker also in Luke's gospel. Luke doesn't tell us when this event happened in relation to the prodigal, I mean, to the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, so my suspicion is here that Luke is doing what he has done regularly throughout his gospel, and we've seen it multiple times, that he's organizing his material thematically rather than chronologically. So I don't think we should assume that this event took place right after he uh, laid out the, 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 the event of the prodigal, uh, I keep wanting to say the prodigal son, it's not that one, we'll get to there eventually one day before I die, but the Good Samaritan is the one that we did last week. Um, so the, the, the chronology isn't important to the issue. Luke is, is organizing things, his thing thematically here, and so it's important for us because we know Luke is a very methodical and intentional writer. He doesn't do things just randomly. So the question should be riding in the back of our minds, why does Luke place this account in the home of Mary and Martha right after his account of the Good Samaritan uh, uh, sort of um, a parable? What is the relationship between the two? I think there is one. But we should be thinking about that as we're moving through. So this isn't chronological. We don't have any time markers. And he doesn't even tell us the name of the village. But we find out in John chapter 11, 
where Mary and Martha's home was. It was in a village called Bethany. We're told in, in chapter 11, verse 1 of John, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, uh, Mary and her sister Martha. He says, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now Jesus loved, we're told in verse 5, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So we find some things out from John's gospel. The, the location here is Bethany. It's a village about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So it's not far from Jerusalem. So Jesus has traveled at this point, uh, as he did multiple times in the region of Jerusalem. And he is visiting this home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And we know from God, John's gospel that, that they were dear friends. They were close friends. We're told specifically here that Jesus loved this family. They were like, in many ways, a second family to him, and it's likely that he stayed with them regularly when he was passing through this, re this region. They, had, they were very close friends, dear people to him. Some of you suggested that what we find in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 and following may have been the first time that Jesus encountered this family. I don't think that's the case because the, the whole interaction seems way, just, way too warm and familial to me uh, for that to be the case particularly in Jesus' response at the end. But he's in Bethany, and he's in this home of people that he knows and people that he loves, people who have believed on him, who have entrusted their lives to him. And we encounter two sisters. The first is Mary. Mary is a believer who loves Jesus. That's what you need to know about Mary from the very beginning. She is a Christian. She is someone who loves Jesus with all of her heart, with all of her soul, with all of her mind, and with all of her strength. She loved him with all of her heart. She was not in the least bit shy and expressing her love for Jesus. In fact, if you were to flip over to John chapter 12, you would see an event where, where Mary uh, approaches Jesus in the midst of teaching and she breaks open uh, an expensive ointment and, and, and she sort of anoints his feet with it and wipes the ointment with her hair, this, this sign of worship and sacrificial affection and love. This is the heart of this woman, Mary, in whose home Jesus has entered. And we're simply told that she's there, this sister called Mary, and that she's sitting at the Lord's feet listening to him teach. Now, the way that this is phrased is important, the fact that she is sitting at his feet. This is a very common way of describing how disciples of rabbis position themselves to learn. The rabbis in the, in the first century would, would uh, gather around them a, a group of disciples who would follow them and, and listen to them, and they would teach them, and the disciples of the rabbis would sit at their feet and learn. It was a position of submission, but it was a position of learning and an official position of a disciple, of a rabbi. And so Mary is here sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she's sitting there positioned at his feet as a student, as a disciple, listening and learning from him as he teaches. And it's remarkable because in Judaism, women were not allowed to be disciples. Rabbis would not take women as students. You would never walk around Jerusalem or anywhere in Israel and where you would find rabbis and official teachers, and you would never see this scene that you see in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. You would never see a woman sitting at the feet of a teacher positioned 
as a student. Even the design of the Old Testament temple shows to some degree how this fleshes out in the culture. Or the court of women is an outer court. Women can only go so far into the teaching ministry of the temple. They were excluded from much. One rabbi wrote this. He said, let the words of Torah rather be destroyed by fire than imparted to a woman. Not all rabbis were that skewed, but some would allow private learning for women, but always in private, never to be seen in public, and never sitting in the official position of a disciple. But as we've seen with Jesus multiple times, he blows through all the prejudicial cultural norms of a society, and he does what's right in spite of what's normal. And here he clearly allows Mary to sit and to listen and to learn along with the men. And in doing so, he affirms that what she's doing is good and what she's doing is right. And so that's what she's doing. She's sitting as a disciple at Jesus' feet, listening and learning. The word of God, the word of Christ, is foundational to all discipleship. And women need that just as much as men. Women needed in the first century to know the word of God. They needed to develop a sound theology, and they need to today as well. It's just that it was much harder then than it is now to access teaching. In a very patriarchal sort of a culture where men are dominant and women are dismissed, Jesus regularly, I just say this as an aside, elevated the, the status and the role of women. I mean, you see it all throughout the gospel. Women played remarkably important roles in his life and his ministry. Um, it goes all the way back to his genealogy at the beginning of the gospels, and we see five women who are highlighted in his genealogies, two of whom are Gentile women, not just women, but Gentile women. Names recorded for all of history to remember their importance. You flip a few pages over in the Gospels and you find early on that you're encountered, you encounter his mother Mary, who's a very significant player in the whole Gospel story. If you flip more pages over, you continue to see Jesus encounter women and in public speak to women, which is something that men in the culture did not do. Walks up on a scene where the woman has been caught in the act of adultery. She's about to be executed via capital punishment by stones. On the tender way he addresses that situation and that woman is remarkable. It was unheard of. Jesus is walking along and he stops by a well to get a drink of water and he engages a Samaritan woman, a sinful Samaritan woman. John chapter 4 and he tenderly engages her, and he reveals to her who he is. We get to the end of the Gospels, and we see them hanging on a cross, bleeding out his life. And all the men are scattered, and who's gathered? The women. That's who's there. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-five. there were also many women there, looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. 
even after the resurrection. All of our resurrection stories, they begin with women going to the tomb. Mary Magdalene encountering Jesus. Not Peter, not John, not any of the other men, but the women. It's remarkable, really, as you look at the Bible, how Jesus, in his life and ministry, exalted women and elevated them in a culture that dismissed them and beat them down. And here we have another example of that. Mary sitting at his feet as a, as a disciple, a true disciple, le- learning and listening and absorbing everything that he had to say. Mary knew the customs. She knew that this wasn't normal and wasn't proper, but frankly, she didn't care She loved Jesus with all of her heart, and she wasn't going to miss any opportunity to sit at his feet and to listen and to learn. She couldn't get any closer than she was, and there she is, completely focused, listening to his teaching. The language here says that she was sitting at his feet and that she was listening to his teaching. The word there indicates sort of intently listening The idea is that she's sitting at his feet, hanging on every word that comes out of his mouth. She was completely tuned in to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. She was absorbing everything that he would say, and she's oblivious to anything else. She's a woman who lives by the word of Christ, and she can't get enough. Let me say to you this morning, there is no clearer evidence that a person is a Christian than a desire to know and to hear the word of God. There's no clearer evidence that somebody belongs to Christ than a heart that longs to hear and know the word of Christ. Someone who identifies themselves as a Christian and has no interest in God's word is an oxymoron. Maybe another kind of moron, too. But it's at least an oxymoron. To say I'm a Christian, but I have no interest in the Word of God. To say I have Christian, I'm a Christian, and I have no interest in listening to what Christ has to say and learning what it is that he would desire to teach me. There's nothing more foundational to Christian discipleship than the Word of God. Everything in the Christian life hinges to some degree or the other on the word of God. How do we know what purity looks like? Where does purity come from in our lives? Well, Psalm 119.9 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? How does he do that? By guarding it according to your word. How do we know what purity looks like? How does purity get developed? We, we, We develop purity by guarding our lives according to the word of God. How do we get direction? How do we know what's God's will for our life? Which way we should go? What decisions we should make? How do we know what it is that God would desire of us as individual Christians and as homes and as families and as a church? Well, Psalm 119, 105 says this, your word is a lamp to my feet and it's a light to my path. How do I know which way God wants me to go? How do I know what decisions I need to make in my life? How do I, how do I travel through a very dark world on the right path? I know it because I'm engaged with God's word and his word shines a light on my path and it shows me where to go. How does a person gain victory over sin in their life? Psalm 119.11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
There's a direct correlation between the word of God being planted in our hearts and our ability to successfully do battle with sin. The word of God is the means by which he confronts and corrects us. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed, or it's breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. The word of God corrects me, and it reproves me, and it shines light on the areas of my life that are out of, out of step with God's will. How do I know those things if I'm not invested in the word of God? I can't know them. I won't know them. More importantly, it's the word of God that reveals Christ in the way of salvation. Second Timothy 3.15, Paul writes about the sacred writings to Timothy, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's through the sacred writings, it's through the word of God that salvation becomes known to us. Now, apart from the word of God, we can't know who Christ is. Apart from the word of God, we can't possibly know the way of salvation. Apart from the word of God, we will have no right sort of measuring stick in our life that confronts us and corrects us when we're out of line. Apart from the word of God, we'll never know what God's will is for our life and we'll never consistently walk in his ways. Apart from the word of God, we'll never be people who live lives of purity and holiness. It's impossible. It's impossible. Be a Christian and not care about the word of God is foolish. And in fact, probably false. Mary understands these things. Mary knows that everything necessary for her life and godliness is hanging on the words of Christ. And so when he shows up, everything else goes on the back burner, and Jesus is serving up a feast of truth, and Mary pulls up to the table and she's ready to eat. But there's another feast that's being prepared in the same house in a different location. And it's going to become a source of conflict in this otherwise peaceful home. We're told Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, before we look too much at Martha, we need to establish something at the very outset here. Martha, like Mary, is a true disciple of Jesus. We know this. We can see this as we sort of bring together all of what Scripture teaches us about Martha. She is a Christian. Like Mary, she loves Jesus. Like Mary, she seeks to honor him. But her expression of those things is very different than Mary's. Very different. Where Mary is completely focused on Jesus, we're told that Martha is distracted. This word distracted is a word that means literally to be dragged away. She's dragged away. When Jesus enters the home, Martha opens the door and she welcomes him into the house and she welcomes him and she opens up her home, we're told. However, pretty quickly, from any time he enters, there's something that's dragging her away from him. It's distracting her. What is that thing? Well, Luke tells us it's much serving. It's much serving. It simply means to serve or to, to wait upon, like a waiter waiting upon tables. A couple of notes here. It seems that the visit was likely an unannounced visit, that Jesus had come and there wasn't a lot of time to prepare. 
And it seems also likely that he doesn't come alone, that he's likely there with at least the 12 disciples who were with him pretty much everywhere he went. So there are two sort of factors here in this, in this equation that sort of play into Martha's response. There's an unannounced visit, and there's a, it's not just likely a, an individual, but there are more people. And so immediately, we begin to see the difference between these two sisters, right? Mary locks in on Jesus, and she follows him, and she sits by him, and she locks in on him, and she listens and learns from him. Martha immediately starts working on all the logistics of hospitality. She's got an honored guest in her home, and she wants to serve him well and to properly serve them. And so there's a lot to be done in order to properly serve honored guests. There's a, there's, there are things that need to be done. There's food that needs to be prepared. There's drinks that need to be served. There's feet that likely need to be washed. And depending on whether they were staying overnight or not, there may be sleeping arrangements that need to be worked out. And so immediately Martha's mind is racing with all the to-do list of hospitality. She's thinking about the cleaning that needs to be done, the gathering of food, the preparing of food, the setting the table, the putting out the nice dishes and the nice silverware, right? The, the lagging out the good wine and serving the guests and, and all the logistics involved in serving the people and taking care of their needs. And we see Martha buzzing around just taking care of everything. And I suspect that there are a number of ladies and likely some men in our room this morning who immediately understand Martha. Is that right? There are some of you that immediately understand Martha. You immediately understand. Unexpected company shows up at your house and you haven't had time to prepare and there they are at the door and immediately when they're there, you may be happy to see them, but your mind begins racing through the to-do list of hospitality things that need to happen because now the dynamics have changed. Guests are here. Now it somewhat depends on the guest, right? Fair enough. You know, family, close friends, that's a shorter list, right? Family, close friends, not so much, you know? You just kind of tell them, hey, step over the laundry, kick the kids' toys out of the way, you know? We have dogs, there's hair, hey, it's all right, you're family. But if it's someone important, right? Somebody unexpected, someone who doesn't usually come to your house, it's different, there's a lot to do. They're sweeping up the dirt and they're dusting all the visible things that they can see, right? The, the stuff that people don't see, don't worry about that. But the stuff they see, it's hiding all the kids' toy, toys and it's moving the laundry and it's looking in the fridge to see what's there. And if you don't have what you need, there's supplies that have to be got. You have to run to the store and all the things that are going through the mind in order to be able to serve and provide hospitality to your guests. You, you shift into action mode pretty quickly and you start serving. Some of you, that just comes natural. That's just your bent what you do. Some of you are much more like Mary, right? Your focus is not so much on the logistics. You're just happy to see the guest, and your focus is on them and on spending time with them. You might offer them what you have in the, in the, you know, in the cupboard or the fridge or whatever. You may kick a little bit of the laundry underneath the table or wherever, but none of those things drag you away from your attention on the guest. You really want to sit with them and talk with them and visit with them. I suspect that probably all of us here in the room sort of fall into naturally one of those responses or the other. Is that fair to say? Nod your head if it is. You see yourself in one of those responses. How many of you who are married see your spouse in the opposite one as you? Yeah, some of you do, right? It's true in our home. Martha is a doer. 
She's a doer who loves action and loves acts of service. Mary is relational. She's someone who loves through relationship and through engagement. Martha serves with her, with her hands. Mary serves with her heart and her mind. Phil Riken says Martha is the responsible one, the type who's always making sure that everything is done to her standards. She was one of the, she's one of the 20% who end up doing 80% of the work. And if there was one area where she excelled, it was in the gift of hospitality. We realize pretty quickly these two sisters are not wired the same way. They are very different from one another. And before going much further, we need to identify a couple of things here. Neither one of these ways of serving is inherently wrong. That's not the point of the story. That's not why Jesus includes this, excuse me, why Luke includes this. Neither one of them is always the most appropriate response. Both are, are legitimate and biblical ways of loving and serving, but both can be done to a sinful excess. And within any church or within any home or within any family or within any friendship group, there are likely people who are both ways. And that's a good thing. But it can cause friction, as we'll see. See, the problems start to arise when we expect everybody else to serve in our way. That's the problem. When we think that our way is the right way and everybody else needs to be on our agenda and serving the way that we've decided serving needs to happen. And when they don't, we, we respond in sinful ways. And that's precisely what happens here to Martha. At some point, Martha starts going down this sort of sinful spiral of emotions. Do you see it? This sinful spiral. She begins just being distracted, but that distraction pretty quickly turns into irritation, doesn't it? It's all behind the scenes, but there are too many things to be done. She can't do it all by herself, so she starts feeling overwhelmed with all the things to do, and her stress level starts rising and rising, and it's rising due to all this self-imposed pressure. And, and, and as she's running around trying to endlessly get all this stuff done, she's going by the doorway, and every time she goes by out of the corner of her eye, she sees Mary, and what's Mary doing? Mary is sitting on her duff. She's not doing anything to help, and she starts getting irritated. And that irritation pretty quickly morphs into self-pity, right? That's what happens. And the martyr complex starts to kick in. She starts feeling sorry for herself, and she starts sulking. Here I am doing all the work, and Mary's in there just sitting down and enjoying Jesus. And here I am by myself doing it all. Why is it that I always have to do everything? Why can't she ever get up and come in here and help? Nobody comes, you know, cares one bit about me. That's what's going through Martha's mind. And the self-pity sort of spirals even more, and all of a sudden, nobody else matters. Mary doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't matter. What matters is Martha. She's concerned about herself. And that spirals into anger. That self-pity quickly turns into anger. Time moves on, and the pressure builds, and the stress, stress builds. Who does she think she is? I can't believe she's just sitting in there. There's absolutely no excuse for her sitting in there when there's all this stuff to be done. I don't deserve this. And her face starts to get red. She starts to be breathing a little heavier. Starts slamming the utensils down a little louder, right? David Pallison writes this, there's something high and mighty about anger when distilled to its basic elements. He says, anger goes wrong when you get godlike. Your desires become divine law. Poke your way into every example of bad anger and you'll find a God playing 
That's exactly what Martha's doing right here. She's angry and she's playing God. Her desires have become the law. And she's demanding everybody else live up to it. And they're not, so she's mad as fire. And that anger spirals into resentment. And as that anger begins to build and the resentment gets to build, the self-righteousness begins to grow. What in the world is wrong with her? She's so lazy and selfish, right? And notice as this spiral happens, her ability to think and assess rationally anything is diminished. She becomes more and more convinced of her rightness, and she becomes more and more convinced of Mary's wrongness until finally something has to be done. She's not going to take it anymore. And that spiral comes out in an outburst. This is also unjust. Something has to be said. Something has to be said. Something has to be done. And what she says reveals an awful lot about her heart. She went up to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Now, this is remarkable. It shows the irrationality of anger. She goes to Jesus, and we find that not only is she angry with Mary, but she's also angry with him. Not only is she convinced that Mary is in the wrong, but she's also convinced that Jesus is in the wrong. He's in the wrong either for not caring enough about her or for not intervening and directing Mary earlier to get in there and help her. And her anger and self-righteousness has risen to the level that she literally stands in the face of God Almighty and rebukes him. Now give her credit, it took some, that took some hubris. To question God's care to his face. To command God to act the way you want him to act. This is what she does. Don't you care that I've been left alone to serve? That's a rebuke. Uh, Jesus, I'm being treated unjustly and you don't care. Don't you care? Has, an, has, has, a, has a more ignorant question ever been asked? Jesus is God incarnate, who by very nature is love. This is God. There's never been anyone who was more gracious and kind. There's never been anyone who was more compassionate and loving than God. And here is Martha to his face, challenging his love and care. Tell her to help me. See, Martha isn't done. She doesn't just ask a question. She commands Christ. She's telling him what to do. Jesus, since you're clearly missing out on the obvious here, since you clearly are struggling to determine what is right and just in this situation, let me tell you here what you need to do. Go tell Mary to get up off her duff and get in the kitchen and help out. That's remarkable, isn't it? At this point, her anger and her self-righteousness is so out of control that she has no idea what she's doing. She's completely blind to it, and all rationality is gone. And I think Martha fully believed that Jesus was going to say, Oh, Martha, you're right. You're so right. What was I thinking? You're so right. What was I thinking? You poor thing. You've been slaving away in the kitchen all this time. I'm so sorry. Hey, Mary, get up. Go in there and help your sister out. I think that's what Martha fully expected, but that's not what she got. We're told in verse 41, the Lord answered, Martha, Martha. 
you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is only necessary. Mary chose the good portion, and it won't be taken from her. This is not what Martha expected. He not only does he not side with her, but he commends what Mary is doing. Martha, Martha, it's a sign of love and affection. He he repeats her name. It's not a sign of anger. He doesn't condemn her desire to serve. He just questions her motives. No, Martha, it's not Mary that needs to be told what to do in this situation. It's you. You're the one who's out of line. It's you who has your priorities misplaced. And so he begins to reveal them. She's become uh, overwhelmed and anxious. She's allowed herself to become overwhelmed and anxious. She's, and all of it's self-inflicted. She's busied herself with many things. She's overplanned. She's overcommitted. She's doing way more than needs to be done. And she's doing more than can be handled by her alone. But nobody's asked her to do it. Jesus didn't request this. He didn't demand anything from her. He just entered the home. She imposed upon herself all of those things. She's feeling overwhelmed and anxious because she's taken on too much. And instead of dealing with finding constructive ways to deal with her anxiety and the pressure, she chooses a sinful outlet for it. He says to her, Martha, the many things that you're troubled by, they're they're unnecessary. You're troubled by all these things, and, and it's unnecessary. The problem isn't your desire to be hospitable. That's a godly desire. The problem is you've just gone overboard. You've made all this a bigger deal than is necessary. She could have prepared something simple and been done with it and joined Mary. She could have communicated instead of assuming and projecting. She could have communicated with Jesus about what his needs were and what he needed and what his disciples needed and what that would look like and given him an opportunity to express his desire and what his priorities are. Instead, she just determines what the priorities are and sets them herself and projects them on everybody else. And Jesus says to her, Martha, all these many things, not only are they unnecessary, but they don't hold the same value. They don't hold the same value. There's one thing that's most important, and that's what Mary's doing. And you're troubled by all these many things. You've allowed a flood of good things to, to squash out the one thing that matters the most. Mary is doing the right thing, Martha. What you're doing is a mess. It's not that hospitality and serving aren't important. They certainly are. The Bible commends it over and over. It's just that they weren't the most important thing in that moment. There was something more important. The Son of God was in their home. He wasn't going to be around forever. There's a limited opportunity to sit at his feet and to listen and learn. And she's passing up this gold mine opportunity for trivial things that are at best temporary. What do we take away from all this? I hope the clock up here is not right. And you're all saying, yeah, it is. Let me just give these to you because I think they're relatively obvious for you. See some takeaways from this text. What do we do with this? What, what, what makes... You know what Martha needed to do? Martha really needed to do this. She needed to realize 
that everything she needed was to be found in Jesus, and he's right there in her home. Everything that she needed was to be found in him. What she needed most was just stop her busyness, relax, sit at the feet of Jesus, realize that whatever she has to offer was enough. To put the performance aside and rest and relax and listen and enjoy. Now, what do we do with this? Jesus is going to knock on your door and come in your house. You're not going to have to make a meal for him. So what do we do? Let me just give you a few of these, and I think they're clear. I think the most obvious is we need to unclutter our lives and prioritize the word of God. Isn't that the most obvious application of the text? That our lives are busy and they're cluttered, whether it's notifications taking up eight hours of our week or it's other things. There are demands coming at your life and my life from every single direction. Most of them are not that critical. Some of those things need to be cut out. We need to take some time to unclutter our lives. And we need to ask the hard questions. What things do I need to cut out? What things are bogging me down that are not profitable? What things am I doing just because they're easy and mindless that are burning away time that I can never get back? And how do I find in my life a way to prioritize the word of God? Sitting at the feet of Christ, reading his word, spending time in prayer, gathering as a priority with the body of Christ and worshiping and learning together. What trivial things in life need to go? What good things that, that we do need to be delegated or, or removed? Only you can determine that. I can't tell you that for you. I don't know what clutters your life. I know what clutters mine. We need to make sure that in our serving, we keep our eyes on Jesus. Isn't that where Martha went wrong? She intended to serve Christ, but very quickly her eyes got off of Christ and onto herself and the tasks. Mary kept her eyes on Jesus the whole time. The way to serve is to serve with a heart that looks to Christ. The moment we take our eyes off of Christ and are serving, the moment that spiral starts to take place. And I don't care if it's in a home or it's in a church or it's somewhere else. The moment we take our eyes off Christ and we forget why we're serving, the way we're serving, we start looking at everybody else and finding all their faults and we start feeling sorry for ourselves because we're having to do all the work and nobody else is pitching in and nobody else is helping and I'm doing everything and why aren't they? And everything goes bad from there. When that happens, we're wrong in every case. And the problem isn't everyone else. The problem is my eyes are not on Jesus. And my serving isn't coming from a servant's heart. And I think beyond that, two more quick things. We need to stop demanding that other people serve Christ our way. We need to stop demanding that other people serve Christ our way. There's a lot of room in the body of Christ for different ways of serving. Our way isn't always the right way. Sometimes Martha's need to sit down, be still, and listen and learn. Sometimes Marys need to get up, get busy, and put their faith into action. But whatever's natural to you isn't always the right thing. And then last, I just say, beware of this, this anger spiral. We see it so clearly in Mary, excuse me, in Martha. And I bet you see it so clearly in your life, don't you? Husbands, how many times has that Spiral played out in some conversation with your wife. 
Parents, how many times has that spiral played out in some interaction with your children? How many times has that played out in some other situation with friends or extended family or your workplace? It happens, doesn't it? We need Christ to help us. We need to recognize that it's sinful. And we need to look to him to find help and to find hope. We need to settle ourselves down at his feet and enjoy and rest in his presence and listen and learn. That's what we need. Let's pray together. God, you're, you're gracious to us. I suspect we've all had Martha moments. I suspect we've all gotten it wrong like that before. We certainly all understand that anger spiral. We all know what it is to feel irritated and feel sorry for ourselves and allow irritation to turn into anger, to turn into resentment. It blinds us, drives us out of control. Some of us more than others. For some, it's a pattern. It's a way of living. It needs to be broken. But it can only be broken by you, Christ. Lord, I pray for my friends and for myself this morning that as we think about our own lives and even the things that are ahead of us this week, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, guide us into how we need to unclutter our lives, what things need to get gone, what good things need to be delegated and set aside so that the most important things don't get squeezed out, so that there's time for us to sit at your feet and listen and learn. so that your word can do its work in our life, correcting us, reproving us, guiding us, purifying us, exposing us to your glory and majesty all over again. Lord Jesus, in you, we find everything that we need. You are our all-sufficient Savior. Help us to rest in you, for we pray it in your holy name. Amen.